We're going to be in Romans 3, almost said 8, Romans 3, also. I absolutely love history. <clears throat> I don't know why, but I always have. I love to talk about things of old. I love to read about them. I love to observe what I can. Those who love to talk about and reminisce about things. Some of my favorite pastimes throughout my life is to sit with grandparents and great-grandparents and aunts and uncles who some who were born before the turn of the 20th century and to just listen to them talk about their lives. And as we get older, you realize we can remember that which happened a long time ago, but not today. It's really odd. And the reason that I think I enjoy that is because I love to, in some sense, see where people are and to try to experience where they've been by just hearing them share about their lives. Some people call that anthropology or whatever you may say it is. But beloved, I just think it's a, a passion for people. I think when we have a desire to understand history, you know, the old adage, if we don't know history or understand history, we're doomed to repeat it. But I think there's a bigger adage there. There are those who pay attention to it who get to sit by helpless while those who don't pay attention to it are doomed to repeat it. But history isn't really repeating, it's just continuing. And your life is one day going to be history. Our lives are going to be nothing. As a matter of fact, the things that we are and the things that we've accumulated and the things that we have done and all the investments that we've made in the lives of humanity in this context will one day be in a box. One day be in a box. Whether it be three years or 17 years or 40 years or 100 years, beloved, so when we think that way, it's extremely depressing. If that's what the meaning of life is all about. If that's why we gather here every Lord's Day. Just so that we can get through life and be done. And we don't read the way we used to read. I mean, just intellectually, we don't process information. Whether we read or not, or listen. We don't listen and process information the way we used to. In my life... We don't process information historically the way people did a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, much less over 2,000 years ago. The attention span of the human race has become obsolete except on things that really, really matter to us. And then we can hone right in. We can binge Day after day after day on incredible shows. You remember when you had to wait seven days for your show to come back on? And over a year you saw ten. And you saw Bounty and Tylenol and Kool-Aid commercials throughout. I need to go buy some Kool-Aid. No, not now. Just drop them all at one time. Download them to the device. Sit down with a pot of coffee and stay up. 17 hours later, you know exactly what happened. 
you should do like I did when my family was very big into reading some fantasy books and I felt out of the loop. I read the first three chapters of the first book and the last two chapters of the last book. Ah, finally. Get to the point. That's not how you do it. You miss the story. That's not how we live life. We don't live life trying to get started and then trying to get finished. We don't live every day with the end in mind if that end is worthless. There's a Stephen Covey reference there, I think. That's not what we do. That's not what the Scripture teaches us. So as God's people, as people who have been born by the Spirit of God, we are to be transforming the way we think. Not going in the ruts of our culture. Not standing in the same way in which people stand so that we would receive information identically as our neighbor. Believers, when we hear things, when we see things, when we understand things, we are to arrest those thoughts and filter them through the sovereignty of God's revelation to us. We are to put them down. To... Put off the flesh, even in our thinking. And this pulpit, and many like it, this position of teaching, we could talk about anything I deemed important. Think about that for a second. Even if it's just a 30-second blip, I could just put it out there, and once I put it out there, there's nothing you can do about it. Not being in your ears, right? For those of you who can speak other languages, someone says something in another language, the rest of us don't understand it. Sometimes things are said in our own language, but it's so far away from our comprehension or from our experiences that we don't understand it. And the next thing we know, we're going down rabbit holes. We're spending time trying to grasp something that we did not know. We love to learn as people, but beloved... The process of learning, as God has intended it, is a process. It's not an instapot. You can't open the Bible, put your hand on it, and absorb it. And then wake up the next morning and go, point. I used to could stare at a piece of sheet music or at a, of a score before I went to sleep. And I could go to sleep practicing that in my head dream of me playing it and wake up the next day more fluent in that performance than I was the night before. And my professors in music school were like, how in the world do you get, you know, because I practice all night in my sleep. I think the Bible would be the same. The question is, what are we trying to learn? And beloved, I'm going to tell you right now, this is the most relevant letter for our time in history. Paul's writings to Timothy. Because we are in a new age of not thinking for ourselves. We're in a new age of allowing our emotions and our fears and our frustrations to be collective. Why in the world would I be up in arms to my own destruction about something that's not happening to me just because I know about it. 
because I don't believe in the sovereignty of God in the midst of that knowledge. That's why. That's why we get upset because we're not trusting in the sovereignty of God. That's why we get upset because we care more about the information or the misinformation at large than we do about the historical and truthful sovereign revelation of God. Now, this is just a fancy introduction to say the same thing I say every time I stand here, which is read your Bible. That's all it is. So for those of you who like to be coaxed, there's your coaxing. Read your Bibles. And do not debate it. Accept it. Embrace it. Breathe it in. And quit worrying about every knuckleheaded ideology and philosophy and history and anything else that could come along that could uproot what God is revealing. God it reveals it to us and we rest in it. And when someone else comes along and cannot see it, that is God's fault. And I use fault very purposefully. That is God's fault because he has not given them eyes to see. And he is not obligated to do so. So how is it that we are to deal with and handle, this is the occasion of Timothy's writing, of, of Paul's writing to Timothy, how are we to deal with and handle those differences of opinions, those demonic opinions, those frustrating, informa informative opinions, how are we to deal with them? We are to patiently, boldly teach the truth and trust in God to transform the mind of those who hear that they will be taught the truth and part of that truth is that in the, men, in, the, in the middle of this error, in the middle of this season, in the middle of all of this stuff going on in our world, God's people will collectively follow a particular path of behavior because not only do they trust in Him as truth, they trust in His way of resolution and promises as truth. That's why James says that he who is double-minded should expect to get nothing from the Lord. Nothing, not one Thing. You know what that means? When the Bible says, go here, say this, put your left hand in the air and do the hokey pokey and I will give you bread. And you do everything but that, expect no bread. Expect no bread. Expect no water. Expect no anything. So there's no nothing, but then that would be everything. And beloved, we're guilty of this because that's what the human flesh does. That's what our mind does. We want to emphasize our hopes and dreams and, uh, and ideologies. We want to really press into the working grind of this world because we, my generation was taught that if you sat down, you were worthless. If you needed it done, you better pull up your pants and you better roll up your sleeves and you better get to work because you can't depend on anyone else. This is my generation. And almost every one of my peers have the same problem. And what do we do when we approach the scripture as believers? With a new mind? With a powerful supernatural infusion of life? We accept the scripture as written, we rest in it, and then we get to work proving that if it weren't up to us, God's work would never be accomplished. <laughs> That's what we do. 
And that not only had become what we were taught, it's what our parents were taught, it's what our grandparents were taught, it's what my great-grandparents, who I had the privilege of knowing for most of my life, were taught. And then we had children. And they saw us, the walking dead, hopelessly hopeless with peace and despair. We are the generation of dichotomies. We are the oxymorons of the world. Beloved, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to take a breath in of rest and to breathe out. And you know why you breathe out? Because it gives you more power to push. And we want to settle it all. We want to have it all fixed. We want every feeling to be in check. Beloved, I am a checklist person. It's how I live every day of my life. I make a checklist. I have a brain dump. I put it all on paper. I have a schedule through September. I have meetings in September. It's ridiculous. You see? I put some things, some goals of mine on paper this past week and I said, you know, I need to reinvent myself in some of these areas. That's a fancy way of saying get in shape. All right. I need to get my shoulders strengthened because I shot some basketball yesterday and it's like, ow, I can't do this anymore. Abby's like, Dad, come on. I mean, you know, I got to do something. I got to rehabilitate this shoulder. Okay. So I have to schedule it. Because I'm not one of these people. If I'm sitting down and I've got a book or I'm doing something else, don't say, hey, want to shoot some basketball? Get out of my. That's not the way it works. You don't just get up. You don't just go to the bathroom because you have to go. You schedule it. You know. This is nonsense. What's the point of it? I love to live by laws. That's the point of it. And you do too. Some of us. Some of us think we're free spirits. I just go with the wind. No. That free spiritedness in and of itself is a law for you. Because when things come along that are solid, foundational, you touch it and it doesn't move. I'm not stepping on that. It's too rigid. My law is move. <laughs> That's where the hippies come from, right? Huh? Not standing on any solid ground here. I want to walk in the mud, baby. <laughs> it's groovy. So we're all, we all love rigidity no matter what it may seem to be. It's not going to be the same for me and for you. And so we read information, we look at the news, we hear each other, and now we are more connected than we've ever been in the last two years through the pandemic. The world has taken notice of nothing, yet we see everything. We listen to everything. Notification settings. Do you know it took me four hours to fix my notification settings on my phone when I got my new phone. And what are my notification settings? No notifications. I don't want to see a button. I don't want to see a number. I don't want a vibration. Because do you know what? My wrist would be massaged all day long. Mm, the notification would be when it stopped. And then I go, oh, something's wrong. See, that's how we live. I don't want that. Yet we are always inundated with stuff and instruction and doing. And beloved, where is the rest? Maybe the assembly should be once every fifth Sunday we take a nap. 
Everybody, we're going to sing a hymn. We're going to have a sister with a pleasant voice, can lullabies to sleep, and then we'll set an alarm for one, and we'll get up and have lunch. Some of the teenagers are going, yes, that sounds great. Some of the parents are going, is there a nursery for that age group? <laughs> but here we are, Paul answering this issue of someone in their culture, in their time, in the same way that I'm speaking, receiving information about the law of God, the prophets. And he's walking through all these things because these people gain some new information. And what do the infantile and immature and unwise do when we gain information? We tell it. We don't arrest it. We don't process it. We don't receive it and then put it in its proper place. We tell it. Now, I'm not talking about gospel. I'm not talking about stuff. I mean, like the woman in sidecar, she runs back and tells everybody, Behold, I met a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the one anointed holy sent from God? That's what Christ means, by the way. Could he be Messiah? Nah, I'm not talking about that in excitement. Like, my team won the Super Bowl. I mean, you know. And we sort of can't contain ourselves. But when we gain information... When we're immature, we just then think we're qualified to share it. Have you ever tried to share something you just learned, but you really don't know it? And the experts in the room are looking at the wall going, is this guy on drugs? And you think about what you say a couple of months later after you've had time to study. You ever given a presentation in school when you didn't read the material? Yeah, we've all tried that. We've all tried to write the essay. But not every class is philosophy. And even some of those classes want the history. Well, but the same is true when it comes to the Word of God. We need to receive it, and we need to arrest it, and we need to sit on it, and we need to grow in it, and we need to collectively listen to one another. We do not need to make confident assertions about things which we do not know about. But that is a plague amongst our world, isn't it? It started going through in the last few months, and I just, every time I see a theological assertion within my friend circle on the internet, I just ask myself do they know it or are they just regurgitating it? And do you know that eight out of ten times in my loose mathematics, they're just regurgitating it? And no, they may have a whole list of memorized proof texts from the Bible, little verses or two that may prove what they're trying to say is what they're trying to say, but they don't know the information. They haven't been taught of God, see. Because if the context of Scripture is not your answer, if you're not able to go to Paul's writing to the Romans and answer according to Paul's whole letter, then you haven't learned it. You've just memorized addresses and you've pointed and created yourself a little chart. Beloved, these are the seasons when we're learning that we are to be quiet. That's why I share with you often. It's a lot of things that I think about I don't dare say because I have to Write them out. I have to think about them. I have a whole list of propositions that I mull over. Now, some of you in private conversation, I'll throw those at you. 
And depending on how you slice back with a sword or either go, uh, test the waters like a comedian with a joke. He'll test it at his mama's house. If it goes over well, he'll do it at the senior sitter, sit center. <laughs> if it doesn't go over well there, it goes in the trash can. Doesn't want to use that at the retirement banquet. Beloved, we have to think about things. We've learned a lot over the last few weeks already about this text. Paul, let's look together and see in this introduction, there's so much here. I I just don't know when I'm going to move out of it because there's things that I want you to see. I want you to look at verse 5 and I want you to go down to verse 11. Verse 5 says, the aim of our charge, of our command, is love. And that love issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from love, that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, have wandered away into worthless talking, worthless dialogue, worthless conversations, worthless Twitters, tweets. Worthless Facebook posts, worthless this, worthless that, worthless phone calls, worthless text messages. See, there's only two ways to communicate in this first century. You wrote a letter or you opened your mouth. (laughs) Now there's a whole lot of ways to communicate. And the reason they did this and wandered away is because they forgot the love of God. Does this sound familiar? You know what's really interesting to me is that this very city, the church here in Ephesus, where Timothy is what I would say one of the chief elders, if not the primary elder who got everything started under Paul's tutelage, is that in John's revelation, we see the Spirit of God writing to John to the letter, a letter to the church of Ephesus, and Jesus indicts this church, doesn't he? What does he, how does he indict this church? He brings a judgment against this church and says, ah, you have really done something. To the angel, to the messenger, to the pastors of the church in Ephesus, write these words. The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we know that imagery. If you don't know, we've got a very quick series of 25 sermons on the reading of Revelation. Jesus says, I know your works, the beloved of Ephesus. I know your works. I know how hard you've worked. I know your toil. See, I think they were my generation, you know. You work real hard, and I know your patient endurance. You've, you've had to endure a lot of suffering. You've just really had a lot of problems, but you've stuck through it. You are stoic people. See, that's what people say about my class. Y'all are stoic. You push through. If we weren't ADD, we'd probably rule the world by now. (laughs) We didn't know that was a thing then. It didn't exist. It did, but you know what I mean. And it says you're, you're stoic. You endure with much patience. You work hard. I know your works. You work hard. You do not bear those who are evil. You don't put up with it. In other words, you're not sitting there and congratulating them. You know. Not like Corinth, who just lets it run them up. You dealt with it. And you have done so by testing those who call themselves apostles. And they're not. 
and you found them to be false, how did they test them? Through the written word of Christ? Through patient endurance. The same thing Paul will tell Timothy just in a few chapters. You remain patient. Patiently endure evil. You're not in a hurry, Timothy, to do anything. God says, I am the one who will sort. You do what I tell you to do and let me be the one who fixes it. You have tested them to be false. Verse 3, Revelation 2. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. See, that's something that some of us do. We go, just give up. Oh, I'm so tired. I'm sick of it. just want to quit. And we all have those seasons, but we don't. Not generation. We couldn't quit if we wanted to. You just can't quit. You've not grown weary. But I have this against you. So he gave them a commendation, and now he's given them a word of condemnation. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Isn't that odd? These are gospel soldiers. Hoorah! They're going to not let anybody tear the Lord's word down, the Lord's name down, tear the gospel down. Hoorah! But God says, I hate this about you. You have forgotten how far you've fallen. Hoorah! Change your brains and do the works that you did at first. If you do not change your thinking and do the works that you did at first from love, I will come to you and I will tear your butt apart. That's what Jesus says. Quote him on that. Figurative language. I will come to you, remove your lampstand. That means I'm coming there and tear you up. I'm going to remove everything you have. I'm going to destroy you. Eternally? No. In this life? Absolutely. When's the last time you got a good report of the gospel in Ephesus? Doesn't there. It's not there. Unless you change your mind. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, and so on and so forth. Now, this is the same congregation. You understand there were many meeting places. There were many assemblies, many congregations, one body. So the congregation in God's eyes was all the true believers of that location. Multiple elders helping oversee multiple congregations logistically, administratively, through the deacons who hold the office and those who serve as servants to the church, while the elders pray and teach and look and watch and check and measure and pray and teach and look and watch patiently, comforting those who doubt, encouraging those who fear, rebuking those who sin, So these persons swerving from the love of Christ, swerving from this 
love, they became bitter, fearful. Do you know what cannot happen if I speak a damnable heresy from this pulpit? It cannot cause you to lose your eternal life. It cannot cause God, because you heard it, to sift you into abomination, into desolation. It should not cause you to fear anything. You should say, Pastor, what did you mean by that? Because what you said, this is what I heard. And chances are I'm going to look horrified. I'm going to, oh, I've got to fix that. Because <laughs> that's not what I meant to say. Or I was wrong. Only the apostles in their divinely inspired writing and their spirit-led proclamation were inerrant. Every man, woman, and child since then are constantly getting it wrong. Now, we don't get the gospel wrong. I'm not saying that. People want to impose upon the truth I just said with nonsense ridiculousness. I'm not saying that we walk around with false gospels. Come on, people. But yet, you can't appease those who do not love. You see that, right? You can't appease those who do not love. They desire to be teachers of the law, but they do not understand what they are saying, and so therefore they make confident assertions, and they sound silly. And then last week we looked at verse 8. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And we got halfway through our understanding of that. And Paul expresses it to Timothy in saying, understand this, is the law was written and the law was given and the law was laid down to dispose, to expose, not dispose, but to expose guilt. Now that's not an evangelistic appeal there. I do not hold, nor can I get behind the idea that the law must be taught so that someone knows they need the gospel. That's nonsense. Because in my experience, anecdotally, I've shared the gospel, I don't know how many times. I remember having to keep up with that. And used to turn in like a thousand a week. You share the gospel a thousand times? Yeah. I talked about that many people, and usually, unless I'm making a doctor's appointment or picking up a dry cleaning, <laughs> we're going to talk about Christ somewhere in all that. And of course, it was hyperbole, but I stood my ground, and they stopped asking me to do that. It was the beginning of the end for me in evangelical life. And so here we are. We have this sharing of the gospel, and many times I've said, well, you know, God sent His Son to save sinners. And people would say, well, I'm not a sinner. Aha! Then you haven't heard the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Done it. Have no other idols before. Done it. Wow. It's the same story of the rich young ruler. Done it. Finished it. Accomplished it. Check. It's easy. Check. Never commit adultery? Check. I'm not a liar? Check. I've never stolen anything? Check. He 
You see? So it's not going to make a difference. The Spirit of God destroying the human flesh of His people and balling it up, bursting it into flames. Poof! Out of the flames comes the phoenix of life. The Spirit of life. Wow! I met a man that told me everything I've ever done. You see? That's what the woman in Sychar said. I'm a sinner. Woe to me. I'm not looking at the heavens. Please propitiate for me, God. That's what the sinner, that's what the publican says in the text. Satisfy your wrath for me. Thank you, God. I'm not like that guy that I'm born again and I have all the knowledge of the truth and I've got a doctrinal statement that stands against all fortitude. And blah, 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 blah. That man goes home condemned. You see? That man goes home condemned. The law was good. Psalm 119, verse 97. We read it this morning. It says, the law, I love your law. It is my meditation. I think about it all the time. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't want to think about the law of God all the time. But this is what the psalmist says. Your commandment, singular, makes me wiser than my enemies. For it is ever with me. It is more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my thoughts and focus, meditation. I understand more than the, those who are older than me and more experienced than me because I keep your commandments. I follow your ways. I hold back my feet from doing evil in the eyes of you so that I may not sin against you, so that I may keep your word. I do not turn aside from your laws, from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Now listen, see the problem we have is that we're not listening correctly when we don't see Christ in that. The point of this is that the law is good. The law is good. I love the law. Paul says it in Romans 7. Oh, with my mind, I love the law of God. But Paul, when he was converted, that's the whole point of conversion, is he understood righteousness rightly. Pun intended. He understood righteously the law of God. It is good. Is not the law of Georgia good? Is not the law of these United States good? Most of them. Like when you kill someone, you serve time or you die. You burglarize or you arm rob, you go to the penitentiary. You serve, there's recompense. You hurt someone, you destroy life and property, you pay for it. You perjure, you go to prison. Well, depends on who you are. You go to prison. So it's good, isn't it? Those are good laws. The law is good. I love the law because it does its job. What is its job? To indict and prosecute. And to bring a verdict of guilty and a sentence of death. That's what Paul says to Timothy. That's what Paul says to the Galatians. That's what Paul says to the Romans. So... 
how are we looking at the law? The law is good that it brings wrath upon wickedness. Do we understand that the wicked are we? We are the wicked? Do we understand that missing judgment is a matter of mercy, not obedience? You don't get to, well, sometimes you do, you don't get to murder people and then just sort of hide for a while and then people just forget about it. Oh, there he is. He was one of a murder 30 years ago, but ah, it's been too long. I'm not talking about statue. I'm talking, you know, they're looking for you. You're guilty. You don't get to hide for a season and then come back around and go, ah, that was yesterday. I'm sorry. I don't even like that car you stole anymore. I don't worry about it. It's not how it works. You're guilty. You don't get to escape judgment through doing good works on top of bad. Even obeying the law of God perfectly does not escape judgment. Number one, because no one can and no one will and no one ever has. It's a matter of mercy. That's why it's called good, 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 good news. We know, or do we know, that we're to live by faith, not by sight? Do we hear those words? Living by faith, the law of faith, the law of love, the law of Christ for the believer is to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus fulfills the law, not abolishes it. In other words, he doesn't wipe it away and say sin can abound. Nobody cares about sin. No, he becomes the he becomes. The object of wrath for the law. That's how he fulfills the law. And it actually points to him. It actually points to him. We see that we're not to live by sight, which is the law and the flesh and fear and the demands of others and of, of even the precepts of Moses, etc., because we know that love, as John would teach us, casts away all fear. Not reverence. Oh, I don't have to fear the Lord anymore. Yoo! No, reverence. There's a difference. We're not silly. We know, what we're, we know the difference. I'm not scared of my father. But I fear my father. Because he's my father. I revere my father. I'm not scared of him. He'll do everything that's good for me. Perfect love casts away all fear. If we don't understand that, then the law brings us anxiety and hopelessness. The law used rightly does not burden the church with do's and don'ts. Think about that for a second. First John, this is not burdensome for you. What is the command? To love your neighbor as yourself because God has first loved you. You understand this is the revelation of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that He is good and merciful and loving toward His people and He does not have to be, but in order for Him to be just, as we'll see in a minute in Romans 3, He must execute judgment on the innocent one. And moreover than innocent, on the righteousness who is Jesus Christ. The law... It's not to burden the flock with do's and don'ts. It's a matter of love in all things. 
In what things? Well, the law of correction. I mean, Paul's writing to Timothy here about charging these false teachers and those people who were continuing to have these divided opinions to stop, to stop and put it aside. And there's no other delineation whatsoever except they stop and put it aside and rest in the sufficiency of what they've already been taught. There's no deeper supernatural boogeyman garbage that comes out of this. Paul is not trying to dig under the psyche of these people and see some snake slither out from between their toes and say, I knew he was the devil. Paul doesn't think these people are the devil. He thinks there's brothers who are dividing the church through their silly ignorance who want to do and say things that aren't beneficial for the church, like children. That's what children do. Why? Because they don't know better yet. Why you can't run for president until you're 35? I mean, your frontal lobe isn't really developed yet. In your 20s, the law of correction is about love. The law sometimes of of doctrine is about love. And without love, what we end up doing is just creating a new law. We have the law of evangelism. If you're a real Christian, you'll share the faith. If you really believe the gospel, you'll share it this way. We've got an outline for you, a tab, a whirly gig, and all sorts of things. This is how you do the gospel. This is a law. The law of temperance. Yep. Depending on where you live in the country, real Christians don't drink anything. Water only, and it must come from a well. If it's municipal, it's sinful. That's chemicals. The law of health. The law of nonsense. The law of dress code. How long should a skirt be if the woman really loves Jesus? I don't know. It depends on how long her legs are. <laughs> this is nonsense. You see? But yet, you take a poll of most people who even believe the gospel, and you ask them one of the biggest problems they have in the context of the local assembly is they feel judged and threatened by the very presence of other Christians who feel judged and threatened. But we all put that legalistic cowl on, and we say that it's sovereign grace, but we're scared to death that somebody's going to make a judgment against us. There is no place for judgments in the household of God whatsoever. God is the judger of men. Our job is to love one another, sacrifice our lives, times, treasures, and, and talents for one another, and to live according to the love that God has given us in His free and sovereign gospel so that we might be fruitful in helping others grow in joy, which is ultimately growing in grace. No, we've got the law of entertainment. I lived by this for a long time. I wouldn't watch TV. I felt dirty turning on a television. Where everybody knows your name. Oh gosh, God knows it. I'm watching Cheers. They're drinking at that show. It's at a bar. I'm not mocking anyone's conviction. I just remember watching that show and enjoying that show and thinking, this is sinful. So I stopped watching that show. It might have been sinful for me, but was it sinful for you? What is most beneficial? Let's work on what love really does. You know what's really worse? I'm spending time watching Cheers and I'm not spending time embracing my duty to love you. 
and to prepare to love you and to teach you and to pray for you. And then if I have some time left over and I want to spend it watching Cheers, then watch Cheers. Cheers. But what you put in, <laughs> you're going to plant. We have, a, we have a law of entertainment. We have a law of hymnology, you know. Well, we're not singing out of that book. There's a heretic in that book. Well, we'll just, miss, we'll just skip his songs. I'm serious. You think I'm joking? There's some songs in that book that we have that, you know, probably don't hold up to the gospel. And there's some songwriters in that book. If you look and can see, if you're my age and don't have your glasses, you won't even know who wrote it because you can't see. It's at the bottom left, and it's just this, like, ant feet prints. You know, that's the rights that they get. Ants come in, they go, step, 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 step. You can't see it. But there might be some heretics who wrote some good hymns. And there are some people who refuse to even be in the building because the man's name's on the paper. The law of textual versions. Well, if it ain't the King James, I don't want it. Well, which one? Not the new, the old. Really? What King James do you have? Is it a 1611? I doubt it. It's probably 18th century. And even then, I guarantee you, you've got some typos in there. I'm not using the NIV. I'm not using the ESV. I'm not using... How about you read what's in it? And when you get that going, you can come talk to me about textual criticism. The law of variance. The law of textual translations. The law of theological unity. Well, if you don't understand... The eleven and a half precepts of justification and the nine propitiatory laws of Semitic redemption in 300 BC, then you are going to hell. And I just made half that up. So don't go looking it up. <laughs> that's just a law. The law of scheduling. See, that's my law. I've already confessed it. The law of parenting. This is how God says to parent. He said, a rod, give me the rod. Here's a wooden broomstick. No, rods are metal. Give me the pipe. <laughs> and it, we laugh, but I mean, I'm serious, guys. That's, there are people who have confronted me because I didn't beat my children with a rod. I said, no, I use a belt. <gasps> oh, dear heavens. Belt. You know, I was spanked with a belt as a kid. Most horrifying sound in the world before you're a parent. When you're a parent, it's at 3 o'clock in the morning. But when you're not a parent, when you're a kid, is that belt coming out of them loops. And then the jingle of the buckle. It's like dead man walking. You know, my last meal, I'm gone. And I was making jokes about that. And I got hate mail, literal hate mail, mailed to my house. From people in the building that I was an abusive, maniacal Manipulative criminal. I'm going, wow, and that hurts. Because I mean, I'm not an abusive criminal. Criminal. I, I might be manipulative, but I'm not an abusive one. Don't call me. <laughs> the law of submission. This is where our sisters get hung up. Your husband is your boss man. No, he's not. He's the first to show you Christ. That's what head means. Husband is andros, which means head. 
You do as he does, not as he says. You see? Oh my God, he's egalitarian. No, I understand the gospel. And all those are cultural. All those are cultural anyway. Beloved, don't teach your sons to rule over their wives in a maniacal way. And don't teach your daughters to be subservient in a sinful way. Understand the grace of God. Husbands, you are commanded to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Little boys and young men and older men, you are to love your wives by dying for her. That's how you lead. And then there's all sorts of wisdom in the relationship as it moves forward. But there's a law of submission. There's a law of Americanism in our culture. Jesus, registered Republican. Not today's Republican, the Reagan years. I mean, you know, I've heard that. I've lost a lot of people because I don't disclose my political points of view. But, beloved, y'all couldn't handle it. And there's not a political party in the universe that can settle itself on my shoulders. Because I think it's all nuts. Because a real believer will understand the love of God. And a real believer will care more about the poor and the marginalized and the weak and the minorities than they ever will about those in power who are keeping the economy going. And a believer will care about the unborn and the born. Law of church planting. I remember this when we started Grace Truth Church about two years before we moved down here and we were trying to plant a church in this area. And all the big wigs all over everywhere. Sort of like throwing a hot dog out in the bird field. Nobody's getting birds now. All those bird dogs, they smell that hot dog. They, come. they heard that I was trying to plant a church. And this organization, and this organization, and this organization, and this organization, all over the place. Non-denominational, Baptist, evangelical, whatever you call it, Presbyterian, all of them. Oh, you're playing the church. We have the methods. We got the money. See, that was always the trial, wasn't it? How are you going to get from California to Georgia? Easy, I'm not coming. I got people already living here. Oh, oh, sorry. Are they qualified? We got a 12-point test to qualify the man for the ministry. Nah, Paul wrote that to Timothy. I got it handled. Well, if they qualified under our thing, we'll give it $50,000 a year for the first five years. Hmm. Ah, never mind. No thank you. The law of church planting. The law of constitutionalism. The, the, the law of requirements of life. The law of the tongue. The law of thoughts. The law of Sunday keeping. The law always kills, beloved, because you know what? We might can hold fast to some portion of something that we think is a good thing, but we are failing so much more in everything else. What are we doing? Is that not, and you might think, where are you getting all that? You're just making stuff up. No, I'm expressing what Jesus taught to the Jews. Oh, you tithe. And you pray. And you come to synagogue. But you're ignoring the greater things of the law. 
and you're ignoring these, and so you violate the very ones you're doing. You're guilty of being a criminal against God because of the things you're doing, because you're not doing them all perfectly. You see? That's the place. That's the understanding. Beloved, we have a problem in our culture when it comes to Christian living that we bear down on people unspokenly. And when people come into the fellowship of a so-called Christian church in America, they feel the pressure of wondering who is thinking that they are not making the cut. Whether it be doctrine or lifestyle. And this is hateful. Because at the most gross negligent, demonic expression of a false gospel. The best case scenario for us to, in, in which we view it, the best place for us to view it is this, this poor soul who has not been born again by the Spirit of mercy. So Father, use me as an instrument of teaching truth. Not being an apologist against the error, but being an evangelist by the word use in and of itself. We cannot keep God's law, and when we do, we are still guilty of it. Yes, in a practical sense, we know that we can learn that when we lie and when we steal and when we covet, we are sinning, and that we should put away these things until the next time these things come about and then we put them away again and then they'll and then we and then we, and we saw the deeper reality of what the violation of the law of do not commit adultery is that if any man lusts in his mind he is an adulterer and someone said well I've never looked at a woman like that or maybe you've thought of a woman that doesn't exist you're an adulterer you can't escape it. And Paul would say, now, just because that's true doesn't mean you just become an adulterer. Uh, Christ died as an adulterer and he wasn't an adulterer. He took the place of the adulterer and he's not an adulterer. Same thing with lying. You know, it's a lie to not say the whole truth. To withhold the truth, not just deceive. Yet we're all guilty of it. And the guilt remains if Christ did not bear it in our place. We therefore cannot keep man's additions to the law. Because that's what we're good at, beloved. And I think that's what was going on here. There were other laws being expressed. There were other distinctions being required. There were other things that Paul himself had not required of the churches in their unity and in their established organization and in their oversight that these people were adding because they were young and inexperienced and knowledgeable, yet they were ignorant. And Paul wanted them to come back. He wanted the reins to be pulled in so that these young people could sit still. And I say young as in, in the faith. We don't know how old they were. They could sit still and be taught with their mouths shut and with their eyes open that the Holy Spirit of God might show them the revelation of Himself in a 
beautiful and brilliant way through the positive and negative instruction as found in the scriptures according to the law and most importantly according to the grace of God. So the law as we see in the Old Testament in its historical use instructed God's people. From the very beginning of days, before it was ever written down, God gave instruction, didn't He? That's what good fathers do. They give instruction. The law showed Israel what was good and what was not good. The law showed Israel how to remain in good health. The dietary laws. The law showed Israel how to prevent infection. Washing their hands. Staying away from people who were sick. Social distancing. It's amazing that it took to the time of Pasteur for that to become obvious. Had to prove it. The law, instruction to Israel, showed what God required, showed what was good for them. But most importantly, it showed itself as a representation of God. Go to Romans chapter 3, the time we have left. I've already taught it all. I've already said everything that needs to be said here. But we need to hear it. The scripture says in Romans 3, and we're not going to read all of it. The Jews were given the oracles of God. The law of God is inclusive of all the writing of the prophets. And also specifically the commandments of God. And then also, as we see it's used in the New Testament, it is paraphrased in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. It's a paraphrase. The Ten Commandments are paraphrase. And then Jesus sums it up by saying, love the Lord and love one another. Okay? We know that. We've already gone through that. So the Roman Christian, the Gentile Roman believers were saying, we, we've never followed all these laws. We've never done all this stuff. We've never obeyed. We don't even understand. Why do I need to do that? Do I need to buy phylacteries? Do I need to do this? Do I need to, do I need to draw a line between my house and my mama's house so that I can see her on Saturday? Do I need to change the way I wash my feet? Do I need to wash my feet? What do I need to do? And Paul's saying, listen, you think they're better off because they have the oracles of God? No. They were unfaithful. But does their unfaithfulness deny or erase the faithfulness of God? Does it nullify it? Does it zero it out? No, because it's not about them. It's about the one who is faithful. No means let God be true, though every man be a liar. How many times have you seen that out of context? That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But Paul asks questions in Romans 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness, talking about the Jews, serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I mean, I speak in a human way. And he answers, by no means. Imperative. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying? They were telling us, they were charging Paul as an antinomian. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are Jews any better off? Not at all. For we've already said, we've already charged, we've already come to the conclusion 
that all Jews and Gentiles are under sin, as it is written, listen carefully. None is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. They become worthless. They do not do good, not even one of them. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues are lying deceptions. Their venom of asp is under their lips. It's poisonous. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The way they speak is destructive. What they say is tearing things apart. Their feet are swift to shed blood, murderous, treacherous. See, I'm just quoting Paul in other places where he starts to list these things out. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. What is he talking about? All humanity. Every single person. From Adam to whoever the last man born is. Falls into those categories. So now, verse 19, we speak that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And through the law comes knowledge of sin as not a precursor to grace. For if it is, it's another law unto itself. And grace in and of itself then is a law that's required, that has a requirement. But now. I love this portion of scripture. It preaches itself. We've talked about it many times. I've preached it. Jesse's preached it. Trey's preached it. Other people have taught it in, this, in, the, in our circles and in our small groups and other things when we've had intimate circles before covid But it reminds me of in Hebrews where it says, but we have not come to that. We have not come to the tempest. We have not come to the law. We have not come. We have come to the festal gathering of the ecclesia, of the saints. And the angels. And the praise and the glory. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Beloved, Paul is saying the exact same thing here to the Romans that he said to the Jews in Hebrews 12. But now the righteousness of God has been made clear, has been revealed, has been set forth, has become visible. That's what manifested means, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the Holy of Holies bear witness to the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant bears witness to God. The law bears witness to God, but it is not life. Sacrifice of animals is not life. Obedience to the precepts of Moses is not life. Because they all died. The righteousness of God. What is this righteousness of God apart from the law? Here it is, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus the Christ for all who are believing. So the righteousness of God is displayed in the law which points to Jesus Christ who fulfills it, who takes the penalty of it, and who promises truth and life, not death and condemnation. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace 
which is a gift through the purchasing of their salvation, redemption, that is in Christ Jesus, who was put forward, by the way, by the Father, God, to satisfy His own wrath by the blood of His own Son. How does it apply? How do we know what is happening? Where am I in the picture here to be received by faith? To rest in the sufficiency of what God's word reveals concerning his son. The law points to the gospel. Not as a requirement unto faith, but as a picture, as a shadow of the faithful one. This was to show God's righteousness. How is the death of Jesus showing God's righteousness? Because He's forbeared punishment. Divine forbearance. He passed over former sins. Because everyone who died before Christ had no real time sacrifice for their sins. The debt had not yet been paid in time. Yet they were still justified in the eyes of God through the promise that God made of His Son. How do we know if they were? They believed in the promise of God. They rested in the revelation of God's promise of life through Jesus Christ. So it's righteous, shows God's righteousness that he killed Jesus Christ. And that satisfied his forbearance. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be the just. He was just and forgiving sinners. Why? Because the debt was paid in Christ Jesus. And he was the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. How in the world can someone be justified because they believe in Jesus Christ? Because the revelation of God, of Jesus Christ and righteousness is that Jesus Christ sufficiently satisfied the law of death. And So when you know this and you rest in this truth, it is because God has granted you faith to know that righteousness is upheld. Holiness is upheld. The law points to the gospel. It is about mercy. This is the point. And any, of, any use of the law that does not immediately focus on the love of God in Christ is nonsense. Though we can learn from it, Though we can understand some things historically from it, though we can look to the Old Testament and learn some wisdom there, the point of it is, is that it points to Christ. The wisdom points to Christ. The psalmist speaks of Christ. Moses, in the giving of the law, wrote of Jesus. You see? The Pharisees walked around going, okay, we've got the handle on the program of ministry. We've got the handle on the practice of ministry. And Jesus says they were blind. Does it mean that we can't put into practice some instruction? We're supposed to. How do we know? The apostles make it clear what instruction is to be put out. The apostles make it clear how we are to understand the commandments and why. So we're not living by the law. We're living by the love of God, by faith. Because the law is the revelation of God's holiness. And it's all about mercy. 
And not only does it, should the law and the commandments of Scripture help us focus on the love of God because we know that we cannot meet them or accomplish them, but on that which we have been given, which is not burdensome, which is to love one another from that point of view, that is where the law flows. The commandments flow from the love of God to His righteousness as a revelation of His holiness. That God is set apart and different in all of His ways and who He is in His essence. And Scripture reveals that we are not God and that no one seeks after God, nor can anyone be God. So that we understand that the law effectively is different than the gospel because it has, as I said last week, different audiences and different promises. The promises of the law, even if they said you will, if they bring success, as we saw the psalmist, it brought success to the psalmist, didn't it? Doing what God says brings success. Not in a worldly point of view, but in a spiritual point of view. Doing what the Bible tells us to do in relating to our enemies and submitting to the government and paying our taxes and all that, it brings success. It keeps us free in a temporal sense. We learn that way. That's called wisdom, but it's not life. And we don't need to conflate these things and try to merge them. There's a complete distinction between that which is instructive and that which is absolutely declarative. And the grace versus merit debate will always be in the hearts of men. But the promises of the law were very temporary. And they were really, it was really unable to be understood in any eternal light. But the gospel is an eternal, that means it's never began, decree of justice and righteousness for God's people through the gift of Christ on their behalf to satisfy God. He himself satisfied himself through himself. And we're the recipients of that contract. Therefore, as Paul would say in Romans 8, like he's bemoaning in Romans 6 and 7, oh my goodness, what is happening? How am I ever going to escape it? I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. There, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life. I read it last week. We know this. We know that in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God, as Paul says there in Timothy, that God is pleased with himself, that the word teaches what is good, and this is good news. That's an alternate use of the word evangel, good report in anything. It could be a financial record. It could be a, a, a medical record. Good news is not, gospel doesn't always mean anything to do with the Bible. It's a transliterated word that now has come to mean the good news of Jesus and redemption. But in the scripture, it has multiple uses. It's used in many different ways. It is good news when the Bible talks about law and wrath and justice because justice is good. But it's not good news for the creature, is it? Because we're all guilty. So the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, is very explicit, very myopic, very focused on the mercy of God. And the word teaches us the good report of Jesus, which is the good news of gospel. That God is happy with himself. He has done the redeeming of his elect children. He is pleased with his work. He is satisfied. And Paul is teaching this instruction, do this, do this, do this, Timothy, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, the revelation of God and the gospel also, what? Gives us the picture of God's intentions and desires for his people who have been set apart in Christ Jesus and how we ought to live in this world.
the shadow points to the truth. And we have this testimony of righteousness. So the law by which we live, beloved, is not one that can kill us, nor can it condemn us. It's the law of faith, resting not in the keeping of the commandments which is in the flesh, but in the destruction of the flesh of the Holy One, through whom we enter into the presence of God. The life, the body, and the blood of Jesus Christ crushed. Righteousness is not keeping the commands. Righteousness is a gift of Christ, giving himself on our behalf for our guilt and giving himself and his righteousness to our account. We have life. So, Lord, let us rest in that. That's my prayer for us today is that we would rest in this truth and that we would grow and understand and that as we technically deal with the history of all these debates that have been going on since the beginning of time, we don't lose sight of our first love. And we love one another, even in the hardest of circumstances, in the most divisive of experiences, so that God is glorified in it. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your, for your mighty work, for your grace, for your love, for your redemption. And Lord, I know that just in the rapid way in which I speak in these types of topics, there will be word combinations that upset the hearts of some because they want to read more into what I say technically than what I intend to preach in a focused theological way. And so, Father, help me to grow in that understanding. Help me not to be hard-nosed or hard-pressed in language, but, Lord, to be generous and liberal in my love and grace. But, Father, to be very stingy in the, in the point of which your word reveals your mercy, your law. But in everything, Father, help us to have love. Help us to see with eyes of faith. And to avoid creating a new law by which we look and through which we look. That we would not judge one another, even according to uh, a misinterpretation or even a false gospel. But Father, we would inquire and see to rectify that error with the preaching of the truth. That we would rejoice in you when you bring a lost sheep to the gospel truth. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father, for your love and your mercy for us even now as we stand and sit before one another this day. As we take the remembrance of the table, we thank you for your mercy. In Christ's name.